Father, as we start this new series, Lord, thank you for those who are here tonight, for those who aren't able to be here tonight, for your body across the city, for your church in the city, your church that's gathering in a few places tonight, the many who gathered this morning. Lord, we thank you that you love your bride and your desire is to bring transformation and um, for your glory to be seen in and through us despite our brokenness and the challenges that we all face. So, Father, I pray as we begin this new season of uh, study and reflection tonight over the next few weeks, Lord, would you come amongst us and stir, Lord, not, not just our intellects, Lord, but most importantly, our hearts. Lord, we don't want just more information. Lord, we want transformation. Lord, that's what we need your spirit to help us with. So do that, we pray, and we yield to you and say yes in Jesus' name. So, Happy New Year. That's kind of what you're supposed to say, isn't it, this time of year? Um, uh, Many of you know, we've got a dog, a lovely dog, Dalmatian, and it's great trying to walk the dog without it destroying my back, but also to get some exercise. And it's a really funny thing when you get a dog. People used to say it all the time, but, you know, you talk to people when you walk a dog in a way that you don't talk to other people. Uh, Dog walkers always say, hello, 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 ooh, that's a nice dog, or... That's a vicious dog. Can you stop it attacking mine? Or whatever it is they may say. Um, not that my dog ever attacks anyone else's. But people always, it's really interesting over the last week or so, the few days that I've been out, everyone's saying, Happy New Year, Happy New Year, Happy New Year. We do say that, don't we? Have any of you said that to someone over the last week? Quite a lot of you, most of you. Why do we say it? And what do we mean when we say it? Well, Happy New Year. I mean, I guess we do. That's, it's a kind of, it's a longing, isn't it? It's a, it's a desire, it's a wish. But I wonder whether we really expect it. Is this year going to be a happy new year? Um, the reason I say that is because I think it's good to be really, really honest, um, to take stock. We live in days of incredible unrest as we look around. There's lots of disquiet, there's lots of financial strain that is very, very real. That's why we're seeing so many strikes amongst other things going on. Fuel prices, gas prices, electricity prices. Uh, it's, it's eye-watering for many people I know in the room. If you share how much you're paying now compared to how much you were paying a year or two ago, for many people, then now their, their gas and electricity is, m- is more than their rent or their mortgage for many people. Um, There's job market wobbles for people, uncertainty, global uncertainty, ecological uncertainty, climate change, political unravelings, which seem to be on just about every nation on earth, whether it's America or it's the UK or it's France or it's Spain or it's Portugal or further afield. There's all sorts of political shaking, governmental fractures, there's wars, there's rumours of wars. Many of these things, of course, are not new. But there does seem to be a collision of them, uh, um, and we certainly are more aware of them, perhaps because of the media, media, for all the good and bad that that perhaps causes. But I would also say there's unparalleled, unparalleled levels of mental health issues being faced by so many. And tragically, zero capacity to alleviate or kind of meet many of the demand that's needed. Um, I read recently of a, a seven-month seven month wait for one lady locally to see a community care team facing mental health issues. 
when you're facing mental health issues, a seven-month wait is not great. And as for young people, well, let me tell you, for young people, it's catastrophic nationally, in, in England certainly at least. Um, the system is completely overwhelmed, underfunded and hemorrhaging staff because there's so much pressure that these guys are under. And there's an explosion of challenges for young people. They, uh, this generation is facing challenges. COVID made it a lot worse. Identity issues, sexuality issues, gender issues, sense of lostness, all sorts of pr pr pressures and challenges that they're facing with increasing occurrence. Again, I read one young lad uh, within the NH system in the Avon and Wiltshire Mental Health Trust who had to wait 642 days for his first appointment. That's a year and three quarters. Imagine being 15 under enormous mental health at the end of life, possibly suicidal, and you're told, well, you can have a first appointment in a year and three quarters. What, what's going on in society? What's going on? Because I think um, the NHS, like many institutions, high street retail industry, talk to people in that industry, is being shaken and crumbling. There's strikes affecting so many parts of our nation, train services, civil service on strike, nurses on strike, the ambulance service on strike. Before the ambulance strike happened, I had to ring an ambulance for an elderly gentleman who had collapsed. And I rung 999, got straight through to someone, said I need an ambulance, and they put me on. And the phone rung for 10 minutes. And eventually he said, I'm really sorry, I don't know what to do, I'll try and put you through. And then someone answered, fortunately, after 10 minutes of it just ringing. And it was the Northumberland Ambulance Society. Uh, she said, I have no idea where you are, and I have no idea how long that ambulance might come, but I'll try and get one to you. <laughs> this was in Newcastle. But what's going on in society? What's going on amongst us? In October, The Guardian reported that heads had said that 90% of our secondary schools in England will have run out of money by next year because of soaring fuel crisis, bills, staffing, and resourcing issues. And in our own homes, like I said, growing financial pressure, fuel or food for many is a very real question. We live in a, you know, a prosperous city, but even within our own city, people are choosing, do I heat, heat my house or do I feed my family? So happy new year. <laughs> happy new year. Wow, gosh. It's a really positive way to start a sermon, isn't it? But I do think there's something really important about being really real about the world that we live in, the pressures we face, the crisis that is existing around us. Because many of us in this room, maybe we're sheltered. Maybe we're blessed, if I can use that word, to have resources, to have a home, to be able to just about to afford to pay our bills, to have a car that we can run, to have security and safety. We have a safety net. Maybe we have some savings. Although for many of us, increasingly, those savings are disappearing and the future looks incredibly pressured. Amongst all the institutions that seem to be being shaken, governmental, structural, transport, healthcare, education, the institution, I would say, as the church, as we know it in many ways, is also facing an existential crisis. 
who we are, what we're for, and how we're supposed to exist in what is an ever-morphing, ever-increasingly fluid culture where everything from gender identification through to the nature and shape of relationships and what is marriage and work patterns and family patterns, everything is up for grabs. And how the church exists in it and finds its identity and way of being and structure is all being shaken. And certainly the institution of church post-COVID, and I would say pre-COVID, COVID just accelerated some of the stuff, has taken a massive numerical and financial hit right across the board. I'm, I'm not just speaking about the Church of England. You know, I've got very good friends in, in vineyard churches, in independent churches, in Baptist churches, in lots of other Anglican churches. I don't know one who would say, we're doing really well financially, we're doing really well numerically. All of them would say, at best, we've lost loads of money and loads of people. At worst, some are saying, this is kind of like really critical. It's a real challenge. Bath, for example, in terms of the Church of England, is facing a massive, you know, one of the wealthiest cities around in Bath and Wells Diocese, one of the oldest dioceses, 1,100 years old, our diocese, incredible heritage of mission and evangelism and transformation and local community care and uh, and Bath as an ecumenical kind of evangelical city where the history of the kind of church in the city has been really strong. Currently, I think there are 23 vicars, and then there are obviously other people serving in the churches. Within five years, we've got to reduce that number by five because of the financial constraints. Who's going to be the five to go? It's quite interesting. No one puts their hands up. Or increasingly, there's a number of us who are beginning to think, oh, maybe I, maybe I will put my hand up. That, that, that's just a reality. Why? Because there's a massive financial hole. And a worldly answer is, well, we have to manage decline. I would suggest you'll struggle to find that principle in the Bible, managing decline. I'm not sure that's a massive kingdom value. But that's the reality that many places are facing. And then next month, the Church of England, some of you will be aware, perhaps, will probably make a definitive decision on the nature as it sees of marriage. What is the nature of marriage? Which up until this time within the Church of England has been, um, uh, uh, within the Church of England, you can only have a marriage between a man and a woman. That is marriage. That is the Church of England's biblical view of marriage. Marriage between a man and a woman. That's been contended by many for a long time, but within the next month, there will probably be a definitive decision about that. And I don't know what's going to happen, if I'm really honest about that. Not, no one really does. For some, it will be a moment of final rapture and relief, and for others, it will be a final rupture, and will be time to go. Either way, possibly. I'm not going to get into the ins and outs of that right now, right here, but you need to know that that's the reality facing the Church of England and could have massive repercussions as it has in other parts of the world. So either way, whatever's decided and proclaimed on, on that issue alone, notwithstanding the so many other, other questions and challenges about money and the nature of church and the shape of church and the way we do church and the legal restrictions and all those things ahead, the road ahead for the church at large is going to be bumpy. 
best, divisive, potentially for countless thousands of people. And for some, it will just be the end of the road. They'll just be out. Happy New Year. (laughs) I'm not laughing, you know, being sort of silly about this. But particularly here in Bath, I would say we live a really lovely life. Most of us that are sort of blessed to live in the city. We live in a gorgeous city, one of the safest cities in the world, in the, in the world actually, statistically. One of the prettiest around, uh, one of the kind of nicest places. I use that word in inverted commas, nice. You know, we, for my kids to grow up here, just such a wonderful place. For those of us that are fortunate to live here or work here, it's an amazing place to be. There's so many things to be thankful for. The danger of that is we, it's like sitting back in a gorgeous sofa. I don't know if you've ever been to a sofa shop sometimes and, you, you know, you've got your budget and you're looking at sofas and your budget's kind of like this and you look at some of the amazing sofas and then you sit in a sofa that is about nine times the budget that you've got and you sit in it and you go, oh, and you think, I never want to get out of this sofa ever. (laughs) And you imagine what life would be like if you had one of those in your living room. Bath can be a bit like that, where we sit back and we go, oh, and we forget the troubles of the world, and we forget the troubles of beyond the walls of our houses. And of course we need to live, and of course we need to survive, and we can't be constantly waiting. And for many of us, myself included, I've stopped reading a lot of the media. I've stopped listening to a lot of the media. I've certainly stopped plugging into Twitter because it's just toxic and there's, you don't hear good news. You hear division, derision, argument, festering, fighting, and media seems to be battling. And much of that whole world is something which drags you down. So, uh, you know, I'm not talking about that, but we're also called not to be a people who sit and put our fingers in our ears and go, la, 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 I'm fine, la, 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 la. Actually, the world right now is a mess around us, the streets around us. Over Christmas, we had loads of people who came to the service. It was, it was beautiful. It was wonderful. But you actually chat to some of those people. Victoria and I had the privilege of chatting to someone a while back who had it, has, has got it all on paper. Beautiful house, beautiful husband, beautiful children, beautiful resources. He's got it all. Hasn't got Jesus and feels utterly bereft because of the things that this person is facing. And that person is not alone. There are so many facing all those things. The institution of the church is being shaken in the same way that I think all institutions across this nation are. But I just want to say this. The institution of the church is not the church. Jesus never said, I will build an institution and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't say that. He said, I will build my church. And when he used that word, my church, you can go and look it up and look at the kind of the language he used. He's talking about the body of believers, my people, my people. And I look out on you and I'm so glad. And I know I've made a lot of you quite glum this evening (laughs) so far. But I'm so glad to be part of a body. And not just here, the body of believers across this city. So many friends in so many churches who are beautiful and radiant And despite all they carry, all the challenges they face, they have hope. Because the church has always been, always supposed to have been about people. 
It's always about people. It's always been about people and always truly be about people, the real church. And yes, even us frail, complicated, broken sometimes, not fully healed, often misguided, often confused people, because we're not perfect. But the true church is people simply fully yielded to and totally committed to and utterly in love with Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And for us, that's what we need to come back to. That's what the church needs to come back to. It's what the Church of England needs to come back to. It's what Vineyard needs to come back to. We may say we are, but we really need to be truly submitted to Jesus and his glory and wonder. What amazes me when I look at the church here and I look at the church across the city is just the, the variety of people. I mean, you're all different, aren't you? I mean, some of you are really different. And that's good. It's beautiful. It's glorious. I'm so thankful. But I can say for those of the, that I know here, I look and I, and I give thanks for every one of you for the differences in your life that make you you, that makes you unique and called by God and called to be part of this glorious thing called church. It reflects the heart of God, I think. Romans 15, verse 5 and 6 says this. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you, this is us, a spirit of unity amongst yourselves as you follow Jesus Christ so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father our Lord Jesus Christ. Unity, oneness, one heart, one mouth. That's the true church where Jesus is glorified. That's the church that Jesus is longing for. He's not lo long looking for a particular structure or a particular stream, and he'll bless that. And he's looking for a b bunch of believers in a city, I believe, like Bath, who together glorify him by being one, by speaking with one heart and mind, by being bold, by speaking out against injustice, by speaking out against culture when we believe that culture is not what the Bible says, what Christ himself says, that dishonors God's kingdom, where we do that in love, but we speak with truth, truth and love and that's a choice to walk together for us as church we're really trying to learn to, to be walking in step with the holy spirit and walking in step with one another amos 3 3 says the two walk together unless they've agreed to do so we need to choose to it doesn't just happen church is not just a nice place where it works because people are just nice we have to choose to bear with one another to love one another to serve one another to yield to one another to to prefer one another and honor one another. It's a culture that we choose. And God is looking to build in our relationships a sense of growing together to see a restored whole church. The truth is, I need you and you need me. And we could look at one another in the building and say that to each other. And it's a good thing to remind ourselves that we really, really need each other. We are not meant to be alone. In our marriage, Sarah needs me. And I really need Sarah. We need each other. That's how it's supposed to function. And yes, there will be challenges. And yes, there will be disagreements. And yes, there will sometimes be great costs. But we need each other. Ephesians 2.22 says, In him, this is in Jesus, you, that's the plural, you, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So God's desire is to build a church, which is not about buildings or services or events. It's to build a people who come together with a sense of heart and mind and willingness. And, and when we do that, 
his spirit is right at the center. His spirit comes into that place. And God lives in the middle of it because he loves it. He can't help it. He loves it. Psalm 133 says, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity for there the Lord commands his blessing. It's like, it's like two and two equals four. When brothers and sisters come together in unity, God's blessing starts sprouting out. It's beautiful. I'm going to play a clip right now, and um, it's a chance for me to um, get off this stool and go and sit down. Uh, and it's interesting, Sarah prayed what she prayed earlier, but it's the clip of the woman at the well from um, The Chosen. Thank you. forgot the name for a moment. Many of you have been watching The Chosen. If you don't watch The Chosen, watch The Chosen. You can watch it free. It's the biblical account of Jesus' followers and his life. And there's just, I mean, there's so many wonderful things. Series three's just started. It's crowdfunded. It's amazing. It's funded by Christians rather than some corporation or organization. And it's the gospel, and it carries lots of heart. Yes, of course, it's an interpretation, and yes, of course, it's filmed, but it's beautiful and glorious. And I want to play a clip that I used with my staff team on um, uh, Tuesday, Wednesday this week. It always makes me cry, like much of the chosen, because I want you to listen to how Jesus speaks to this woman at the well. And how this woman at the well, who feels lost and judged and abandoned, not just by people, but by God, speaks to Jesus. And listen to what Jesus says, because it's prophetic, it's powerful. These are the people that Jesus wants to touch. This is the world of lostness and brokenness and pain that Jesus wants to speak right into the middle of. I'll turn the lights on. Give me a drink. Did you hear me? That's bad, huh? What? You, a Jew. Ask for a drink from me and for medicine. And a woman. I'm sorry. I should have said please. You know, it's not safe for you to be alone out here. Nor you. Why haven't you come with others? Why so late in the day? Don't women come to the wells in the, the cool of the morning? Yeah, well, none of them will be seen with me, so I have to come with you in the heat. You have so kindly reminded me. Why won't they be seen with you? Long story. I'd, I'd still like a drink of water if, if you can spare it. Amazing what a parched throat will do. Aren't I unclean to you? 
Won't you be defiled by this vessel? Maybe some of my people say that about your women, but I don't. Yeah? And what do you say? I say if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink. Really? And I would give you living water. Would. Except that you have nothing to draw water with, and this is a deep well. Besides, what do you need from me if you have your own supply of living water? Long story. But Jewish water is better than Samaritan water, hmm? That's not what I said. Are you a better man than our ancestor Jacob, who dug this well? Your water is better than his? I know, Jacob. And everyone who drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Wouldn't that be nice? The water I give will become in a person a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Really? Yes, really. Prove it. First, go and call your husband, then come back. I will show you both. I don't have a husband. You are right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're living with now is not your husband. <laughs> oh, I see. You're a prophet. You're here to preach at me. No. Usually the one good thing about coming here alone is I can escape being condemned. I'm not here to condemn you. I've made mistakes. Too many. But it's men like you who have made it impossible for me to do anything about it. How? Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain. But you Jews insist Jerusalem is the only place for true worship. They say that because the temple is there. Yeah. Exactly where we're not allowed. I'm here to break those barriers. And the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. So, where am I supposed to go when I need God? I've never received anything from God, but I couldn't thank him, even if I did. Anywhere. God is spirit. And the time is coming and is now here. That it won't matter where you worship, but only that you do it in spirit and truth. Heart and mind, that, that is the kind of worshiper he's looking for. It won't matter where you're from. Or what you've done. Do you believe what I'm telling you? <sighs> Until the Messiah comes and explains everything and sorts this mess out, including me, I don't trust in anyone. You're wrong when you say that you've never received anything from God. This Messiah you speak of, I am he. The first one was named Ramin. You were a woman of purity who was excited to be married. But he wasn't a good man. He hurt you. And it made you question marriage and even the practice of your faith. Stop it. The second was Farzad. On your wedding night, his skin smelled like oranges. And to this day, 
Every time you pass by the oranges in the market, you feel guilty for leaving him because he was the only truly godly man you've been with. But you felt unworthy. Why are you doing this? I have not revealed myself to the public as the Messiah. You are the first. It would be good if you believed me. You picked the wrong person. I came to Samaria just to meet you. <laughs> Do you think it's an accident that I'm, I'm here in the middle of the day? I am rejected by others. I know, but not by the Messiah. And you know these things because you are the Christ. I'm going to tell everyone. I was counting on it. <laughs> Spirit and truth. Spirit and truth. It won't be all about mountains or temple. Soon. Just the heart. You promise? I promise. This man told me everything I've done. Oh, he must be the Christ! <laughs> You forgot your arm. For the, for the world who is so lost and so many suffering rejection of all sorts, there's a Messiah who knows them and who loves them. Uh, what struck me about when I watched that clip again recently is this whole thing of, you know, worship is not supposed to be at the temple, but Jesus said it's supposed to be in the heart. It's all about the heart. And so often we've turned faith and Christianity into churchianity. We've made it about attending services or being at certain places, or being in the right stream, or worshiping in the right way, or doing the certain style, you know, in the latest Bethel songs, or the latest Hill songs, or, or the latest Maverick City songs, or, 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 you know, we, and none of those things are bad, and all of them are wonderful gifts. But sometimes we get so caught up in the structure that something inside us so slowly starts to die, and we lose our first love which was always supposed to be Jesus. I believe that this year is supposed to be a happy new year amongst the pain and devastation because it's going to be a year of heart transformation for so many. It needs to be a, a year of heart transformation and yielding. And we are supposed to be moved by Jesus. I've been in church leadership for some, I don't know, 30 years nearly 30 years that's a long time and, and of course I, I, I went into it I certainly don't ever go into it for the money do you 
I went into it because I love Jesus and he called me and I heard him call me to that. But there have been times when it's become a job and I've done it and I've done it well and God's very kind and gracious. But of late again, I've just found my heart moved again by Jesus and fallen in love with him in a new way and experienced his love. We're supposed to be moved by Jesus. We're supposed to be touched in our heart by him when we worship when we pray when we gather with one another and sometimes that will be with real joy and sometimes it will be with real pain but our hearts are supposed to be moved we're supposed to encounter Jesus in the midst of all we're doing Colossians 2 2 is this beautiful verse about the people of God being knit together Sombabizo um, is, is the Greek word, and it's about being driven together, forced together, not by the fact that you all turn up to a service at a certain time or at varied times for us as the maths. It's about hearts being joined together, knit together in community. And so we're starting this new series, Nehemiah. You'll be pleased to know this is not just the introduction, and now I do my preach on Nehemiah. This is all part of what I wanted to talk about as we launch into this series in Nehemiah. And why have I taken time to do all this stuff? Well, we're doing the, the book of Nehemiah because I believe God told us to do it. And Nehemiah is an example that's often used in church planting manuals and training and church growth manuals. But it speaks of a deep unity expressed through building together with a common vision for the glory of God and to support and stand with one another. And, and we're going to hear the passage tonight and then I'm going to share a few thoughts and then I'm going to finish. But the passage we're going to hear tonight is from, just, we're going to hear chapter one and a little bit of chapter two. I'm not sure who's reading, but whoever they are, I'm sure they know they are. Brilliant. Thanks, Miles. Um, the passages are Nehemiah chapter 1 and Nehemiah chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, 11 to 13, and 17 to 20. The words of Nehemiah, son of Ahathaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province, are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servant, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you, 
You have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you, you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather, gather them that from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there for three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate toward the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins, and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me, and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Thanks, Mark. Well, the next six sessions we're going to be looking at Nehemiah. There's so much to learn. And each of them has got a, a title. Tonight's title is called Restore. Next week, Rebuilt, Rebuild. Then Repent, Resist, Remember, and Return. I love, I've loved the book of Nehemiah for a long, long time. I suppose as a church planter, um, it's always been there. First, one, first three in chapter one, those who survived the exile, those that were left, the few remnant that were left and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. There's all sorts of challenges they're facing. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. It, everything's a mess. Everything looks hopeless. It's, it's pretty desolate. People cry about a lot of things. I don't know whether you're a crier or not. It's funny, my children say to me that, that they think I'm quite unemotional. I don't cry a lot. Um, I actually cry, <laughs> I actually cry loads, particularly when, uh, when God's spirit is around. Um, uh, and I've been crying a lot recently, not in a bad way, I felt God's spirit. But people cry at weddings, lots of people cry at weddings. Uh, I take a lot of weddings as a vicar, I do do a lot of weddings. 
and the amount of times that the bride's crying and the groom's crying and the best man's crying and the parents are crying and then now I end up crying. It's a good crying, right? I mean, I, I'm hoping it's a good crying when the bride and the groom, you know, are crying, but it's a good crying. Um, parents cry when their kids leave home. We definitely cried whenever we left home, didn't we? Sam's leaving home soon. We'll see whether we cry then. <laughs> I'm sure we'll cry then. Um, I don't know whether you cry at movies. Who's going to own up to say that they cry? It's really funny when you go to a cinema and there's a bit of an emotional moment and you see the guys doing this. <coughs> <coughs> trying. Yeah, you do that? Yeah, yeah. You know, particularly us men don't like admitting the fact that we're crying at movies, but men, it, mo most of us cry at films. You know, when you're, there's nothing better than being on your, uh, on your own at home and being able to cry all you want to. We cry about all sorts of things. But Nehemiah is a man who cried over a broken wall. He was a man who was obviously quite a significant guy. He was a man of stature and power. I I'm, I'm don't think he would have been some sort of wetty, wussy kind of guy. He was the cupbearer to the king. He had a significant role, but he was moved when he heard, when one of his brothers came and said the mess and the brokenness and the devastation and the destruction and the rubble. And instead of kind of like looking at the news and going, isn't that awful? Perhaps I should pray. Actually, his first response was to cry because something happened here in his heart. He's a man who was driven by grief at the plight of the city. But, and this is the important bit, because sometimes we can be overwhelmed with tears and sorrow and sadness and hopelessness. Yes, he was a man driven by grief at the plight of the city, but inspired by faith to do something about it. Nehemiah, just for a bit of historical context, I promise I'm not going to go on much longer, arrived in Jerusalem, 444 BC. Uh, and he was a great leader who, who God did an incredible thing through, a phenomenal feat. He installed a vision in amongst God's remnant, amongst a few people. God gave him a vision that he was able to, to, to kind of instill in this little remnant, this rat ragtag bag of people who felt like they had nothing left in Jerusalem to rebuild the city walls and see it restored and in spite of much opposition and we're going to talk about that in future weeks because there's lots to learn from the opposition and the accusation and the challenges that come against his vision in spite of all of the numerous hurdles they accomplished the task in 52 days that's not bad is it <laughs> city transformation in 52 days when everyone was desolate and hopeless it's the power of God when we obey God's vision and when we're moved and captivated by something that God gives us a vision for the temple had been rebuilt in about 70 BC but the walls that Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed in 586 BC were just in ruins and the city was defenseless against all attacks from the enemy and Nehemiah hears from his brother firsthand about the rubble and the destroyed great gates. And there's this graphic description, which for him is a bit like the bleak picture that I painted at the beginning of this sermon <laughs> of the mess and the rubble and the detritus and the hopelessness and the fire and the devastation. And it does something to him. It doesn't make him go, oh, that's awful. 
it messes with his heart and his head and he weeps and he mourns and then he fasts and then he prays because he believes there's a God who's able to do something about all this and that it must be a solution and he cries out to God to do something about these deplorable situations and God responds by doing something through him. And that's often the reality, isn't it? The world's in a mess. And God says, but I've got my beautiful bride. And you are the answer. You are the solution. But it has to begin with our heart being moved. What does the book of Nehemiah teach us? What are we going to learn over these next few weeks? Well, that we have to have a burden for the people in this world who are lost. For his people. A burden for the church and the world. And we need to catch a vision for his purpose. That he d- we need to believe that he wants to transform this city. Do you believe that God wants to redeem and restore a system like the NHS in our city? I do. Do you believe that God wants to restore and bring true, honest, transparent, powerful, effective government in our nation? I do. Do you believe that God wants to heal the sick and raise the dead? I do. Do you believe that God wants there to be fair wages and justice for the oppressed and that there won't be families that have to choose between feeding their kids or putting their lights on? I do, because God is a God of justice and God is a provider and God loves his people and God loves the lost and God will go out of the way to find the woman at the well where there are hearts that are willing to yield to him. Are we? I mean, I love the story of the woman at the well because Jesus is there on his own while the disciples are off busy getting food because Jesus needed to eat, right? That's fine. We all need to do stuff. But how often is the church busy doing stuff and we miss the woman at the well? Jesus never misses the woman at the well. So... I believe that God wants to give us a vision. He wants to give us his burden for the lost and for this world. And he wants to give us the strength to be able to commit to being saying yes to that and being involved and seeing it in our days. I believe that God wants to bring a, a revival, but it won't be like a revival we've ever seen before. But I believe that God wants to do it in our days. I believe that God wants to transform this city, but I believe that God doesn't want to do it at some point in the future. I believe God wants to do it soon. I believe he wants to do it in our days. Nehemiah 2 verse 18 said, Then they said, let us arise and build. So they put their hands to the good work. They caught the vision. They said, you know what? I'm in. And I have said to Jesus in this last month, whatever you're calling us to do, I'm in. If you want to get rid of this building, you want to get rid of my job, you want to get rid of structures and things like that. Whatever it is you want to do, Jesus, whether you want to use this building to bring glory to you in the city, I'm in. If you want me to give stuff up, I'm in. Because I know God wants to do something beautiful and I don't want to miss out on that. But the point is we're supposed to be together in that. Nehemiah 4.6. So we built the wall and the whole wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind, literally there, the word is a, a heart. 
but had a heart to work. And I believe God is wanting to do something in all of our hearts. And it begins with us individually in this year, 2023, to give us a new heart that says, Jesus, I'm in. In these troubled days, I'm in. Help me to build something that lasts. That's not about building for just my life, but building for your kingdom so that we can see transformation. Jesus, I need a fresh revelation of you. I need to encounter you and you. And they stood shoulder to shoulder and they worked together and they fought together and they covered one another and they loved one another and they served one another and they saw God restore what had been torn down. They restored the rubble. And I believe in these days, God wants to restore the rubble, but I believe that he doesn't want to build just what was there before. He wants to build something new. And it's amazing how you can take old rubble from something that's fallen apart and build something glorious which is what it was always supposed to be. I believe that God wants to restore the church, not back to the image that maybe we imagined from the past, but according to his ways, according to his purpose, and according to his blueprint. And for that, I'm in. And that's what I'm committing myself to, whatever that looks like. I don't know what the next few months will bring. It may be a real change. It may be a radical change. It may be incredibly painful. But I'm in for Jesus and his ways. I can't promise you even that we'll be in this building. Who knows? Because I want to put everything on the altar. But I'm utterly committed to building for the kingdom and being part of the living stones that he's wanting to build with. So I want to ask whether you're wanting, able, willing to be in. Some of you tonight might be able to go, yeah, I am. Some of you might need to, some of you are reflectors, which is good. <laughs> Maybe you need to go away and think, okay, Lord, what might that look like? And decide. Because I don't want you to just say, yeah, yeah, I'm in, without really knowing what that might mean. And so to give you space, rather than just going into worship to finish, I'm going to play a worship song that Libby uh, gave to us as a team on um, Wednesday. And it's, it's a, what's it called? Consecration, that's the word I'm after. It's a song of consecration, and it's a, it's a song that simply says, Jesus, here I am. I'm yours. I give myself to you. I think that's a really good thing to do, not just at the beginning of 2023. It's a good thing to do every day. I'm trying to do it every day right now. I'm consecrating my back to him, my knackered leg to him, my heart to him, my beautiful family to him, my glorious children when Sam goes off to uni or wherever he's going next year, waiting for my heart to go, oh, Lord, I give you my children because they're yours. I'm consecrating all my riches, the, the little wealth I have to him, my home, my house, my marriage. The more we give to Jesus, the more it's in his hands for him to steward it because he's perfect and loving and wonderful and kind. Let's make this year a glorious year of consecration to allow him to build his church.